It is this disparity that spurred the passage of California's Fair Pay to Play Act. The law grants NIL rights to student athletes who compete in California. While I agree with the idea in principle, California's law fails to capture the nuance that is required to get this right. Despite uncertainty on the right path forward, there is consensus that something must be done and that federal action is needed. The question before us today is, how can we prevent state-by-state -state chaos and protect the collegiate athletic system that is beloved across the nation? First, the system must permit student-athletes to capitalize on their NIL rights. Second, federal legislation must protect student-athletes in the recruitment process and penalize bad actors who seek to take advantage of the new NIL laws. By expanding upon existing protections in federal law, we can deter bad actors, encourage oversight, and promote transparency. Third, any legislation must also guarantee that student-athletes are still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using NIL to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. It is no longer a question of if, but rather when and how. Congress must act to preserve the collegiate sports system we all know and love. For those reasons, I have begun to draft federal legislation in the House to allow student athletes to profit from their NIL and create one uniform national standard. We work to provide student athletes with the full cost of attendance in addition to tuition fees, room, board, and books. This change provided funds for trips home, entertainment, and incidental living expenses in amounts ranging between $3,000 and $6,000 per student per year. We have changed rules so former participants can return to school on scholarship to complete their degrees. We have configured legislative changes to allow unlimited meals and snacks. We have implemented transitional health care so that medical expenses for injuries that linger on until after graduation or departure from school can be reimbursed. All of this plus Pell Grant benefits up to $6,800 a year for those qualified. The potential for harm is present and changes that some assert as inalienable rights also have the possibility to irreparably damage the collegiate model of athletic participation. This model is and has been the envy of the world. College sports is not a vocation and the participants are not employees. Some NIL proposals threaten to undermine the core values of college sports by allowing payments for NIL to serve as pay for play and potentially turning college athletes into employees. Unfortunately, constant litigation, litigation threats, and recent state legislative efforts to regulate aspects of college sports have complicated these efforts. We want to preserve the unique character and quality of college sports that serve student athletes so well. And senators, we may need your help to achieve those goals. I approach the topic of today's hearing with an abundance of caution and reluctance, even skepticism and trepidation. On this issue, Congress might well heed the time-honored Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. I believe my colleagues recognize the need to avoid differences among the states by having a uniform set of standards by which our collegiate student athletes compete set of uniform standards that will strive for a level playing field. Senator Campbell. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for that uh, long and thoughtful statement and a little bit of reminiscing about your own experiences. I consider myself a sports fan and definitely a collegial sports fan, but certainly uh, one that sides with wanting to have amateur athleticism and to make sure that we're keeping amateur athleticism 
If anything, I feel like we should be doing more as a committee in our oversight of the violations of that athleticism and amateurism that occur all the time and uh, mark me down as not a fan of one and done, but somebody who really believes in the collegial system, as you said, of giving athletes an experience of leadership, teamwork, being all sorts of character that I hope that we can continue to preserve as we look at this legislation. So, as I said, I believe in preserving amateurism and that athletes would be able to grow. And what they're asking for now in their report is a broad-based antitrust exemption, which would be extraordinary even in sports. Well, it would be certainly extraordinary in college athletics. Uh, as you well know, NHL, Major League Baseball, and so forth have antitrust exemptions. Uh, That's with the presence of a union senator. That's the non-statutory labor exemption where athletes have a voice. That's a very, very different scenario than what we have here. That is a, an excellent point. Thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I, I did want to recognize, because uh, I see him in the audience, uh, former Congressman Tom McMillan, who served on this committee when I started. And he, of course, was a great basketball player. And when he was here, championed uh, the concerns of college athletes. So I'm sure that's why he's here today. Thank you, Tom. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is April 7th, 2023. And as I promised in my last episode, I'm going to talk some more about this hearing that occurred last week in the House in a subcommittee of Energy and Commerce, the Innovation, Data, and Commerce Subcommittee. And it was really interesting to me on the backside of that hearing what the response was to it, particularly among the expert commentariat. I think a lot of people who tuned into this hearing, and this hearing got way more attention than the prior seven hearings, in part because there's been this long delay, and they really publicized this hearing. And it was part of a coordinated rollout themes. And I talked about that two episodes ago with that New York Times op-ed by the Notre Dame president and the Notre Dame athletics director. As always, you really have to look at the other things that are going on at or about the same time to understand the strategy. But at a broader level, I believe that a lot of people watched this hearing and, and they were confused. And then their initial reaction, particularly among the experts, was to just dismiss it because it didn't make sense to them. And one of the reasons it didn't make sense is that this hearing had absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And what was surprising to me is that a lot of these people in the commentariat were surprised that it had nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. But the fact of the matter is none of the eight hearings that have been conducted since February of 2020 have really been about name, image, and likeness. The Power Five and NCAA's campaign in Congress has been about one thing and one thing only, and that is eliminating any external threat to their regulatory authority or their business model or their financial interests. And while the justifications for their engagement with Congress and the boogeymen that they've set up to justify congressional intervention have changed in terms of the themes and the scare tactics they've used, the end game has been very consistent and it has been delivered with almost military-like precision and discipline through some of the most powerful lobbyists in American history. And I want to talk real quickly about the opening montage. I'm going to come back and go through each clip to explain the importance of it. but. 
Some of the people that you heard in that montage were not at this hearing last week. You may be asking yourself, what the hell do they have to do with what happened last week? And my answer is everything, everything. And the clips in that montage come from three hearings. The very first hearing on February 11th of 2020 that was held in a subcommittee of Senate Commerce. And this is back when the Republicans controlled the Senate and the Democrats controlled the House and the NCAA and Power Five launched their campaign in the Senate because they had Republican senators lined up to do their bidding. And they had a very clear strategy from the very beginning. But at that very first hearing, I, I pulled clips from Anthony Gonzalez, former representative, a Republican from Ohio. He was the very first witness to testify. And then Bob Bowlesby, former commissioner of the Big 12 Conference, Mark Emmert, former NCAA president. Then the next clips come from a hearing on July 1st of 2020. And you hear from Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, who was the chair of the overall Commerce Committee, and very important. And then the, the next clip from that hearing is from Maria Cantwell, who was the ranking member on that Senate Commerce Committee. She's a Democrat from Washington. Wicker and Cantwell have been the two most important decision makers in the, the entire congressional engagement because they have occupied the, the chairmanship of the Commerce Committee, and they have primary jurisdiction for sports matters. And if you don't understand where Roger Wicker and Maria Cantwell are coming from, and you haven't watched these hearings and studied them to understand how their thinking has been framed from the very beginning and then how it has evolved. You can't speak intelligently about what the lay of the land is in Congress and what the likelihood is of the NCAA and Power Five getting protective federal legislation. And then a third witness from that hearing, Dion Kohler, who is a law professor at the University of Baltimore Law School. Then Richard Blumenthal, Democrat senator from Connecticut, also from that July 1st hearing. He's been a powerful spokesperson on behalf of athletes' rights, but that exchange shows some gaps in his knowledge that I think are important to pay attention to. Then we press fast forward to March of 2023, the hearing last week, and we get a clip from Frank Pallone. And the reason that I chose those clips was to illustrate just how powerful an advantage it is in any kind of engagement with Congress to have a running head start, to have a clear coordinated strategy, to know what your end game is to stay on task and then to keep the decision makers as ignorant as possible. And that has really been the hallmark of the Power Five and NCAA's campaign in Congress. And I think those clips illustrate the value of controlling the language and then having a powerful infrastructure in place to basically impose your will. I think those clips also reflect an important gap in both knowledge and motivation between the Republican legislators who have been really driving the train on this, mostly in the Senate, and then what we see on the Democrat side, which is really weak, quite frankly. And in large part, that's because they have been responding to the NCAA and Power Five campaign when they went on offense in earnest in 2019. And it hasn't been a fair fight. And the athletes don't have the top lobbying firms in the history of the United States of America working for them and coordinating their message and talking to the Democrats behind the scene to get their issues on the table in a coherent, intelligent, and persuasive way. And that really goes to the point that I've talked about in my podcast, and that is that an organized lie is more powerful than a disorganized truth. And I think it's so, so important that people understand that you simply can't look at last week's hearing in isolation. You have to understand some very important history. You have to understand some very important themes, and you really have to understand 
the timeline, particularly the timeline from March of 2019 to the present, the timeline tells a very interesting story. It's a story that is inconsistent with the propaganda and the dog and pony show that you got last Wednesday at this House hearing. And another reason I wanted to do a setup episode to talk about what you need to know. This is really a kind of a little lesson on what I think stakeholders should know, people commenting should know about the history that frames this congressional debate and then the timeline in the congressional debate. But before I get into the timeline and the hearings and the milestone events and a little bit of the history, I also want to point something else out. During the hearing last week, there was a reference to a document. It was Jeff Duncan, Republican from South Carolina. He made reference to an ACC letter, and I hadn't seen an ACC letter. Of course, I talked about the one that was submitted back in the September 2021 hearing, and there are all kinds of problems with that, but it just seemed odd that he would refer to a letter that wasn't part of the record. I went back into the repository, the archives for the subcommittee, and no uh, supplemental material had been submitted. You know, a lot of times people will send letters, people who are not participating in the hearing and, and they can get their stuff in the record. There was nothing there. So Friday morning, I, I called the clerk of the uh, subcommittee and said, you know, wh where's this document? And she said they were going to be posting it later in the day. So at the very end of the day on Friday, they put these documents up and there were about 16 documents that were submitted. And man, there's some really interesting and in my judgment, distressing information in those documents. Th those are so important that I'm going to do a separate episode and there are actually two episodes from those documents. One on letters that were provided by presidents athletics directors and conference commissioners from all three divisions, and they were lobbying stump speeches. They are perfect evidence of the fact that this hearing had nothing to do with nil. They were all drawn from the NCAA government relations talking points memo that I talked about in the last episode. And they all landed with the three death provisions, preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees, the three things that the NCAA and Power Five need to end the athletes' rights movement. Those letters were identical. And that raises a whole another set of issues. But then there was also this letter from the ACC that deserves separate treatment. That letter raises some of the most important issues in this entire discussion about the future of college sports and who the powerful decision makers deem worthy of commenting from the student voice standpoint. And as with the ACC letter in 2021, you know, it wasn't just some toss-in letter where some students say, here's what we think. Both of those letters purported to speak for all 10,000 ACC athletes. And both of those letters were literally held up by members of Congress and presented as the sole athlete voice. And they imply that there was consensus on the points raised in both of those letters. And it is a real problem. And there's some other features of both of those letters that just are begging for an explanation. And so I'll deal with that in a separate episode. So let me first talk about some historical context for all the discussions that are occurring right now. It's really important to understand. And that is that the driving force behind change in the evolution of big time college sports begins and ends with big time football and what is now Power Five football. This is a football show and you need to understand the power of big time football, the way that big time football has imposed its will 
on the college sports regulatory model and the business model, and then how the other interests in college sports have really been held hostage to the wishes of big-time, powerful football decision-makers. And all of the things that I'm going to go through here operate in the background of any discussion about the regulatory model, the business model, and the interests of the various stakeholders. So if you don't have this running in your background, as you're listening to a hearing like the hearing last week, it's going to be a challenge to make sense of a single event like that. And to gild that point, I would imagine that if you polled people who listened to this hearing last week, including the experts, and asked them this question, what did that hearing have to do with big time Power Five football? Most of them on the back end of that hearing would say nothing. It had absolutely nothing to do with big time football. That's precisely what the lobbyists and the lawyers for the Power Five football interests want you to think. And I'm going to talk about this in a little more detail when I talk about the composition of the witness list from the very first hearing in February of 2020 and then to the last two hearings, one in September of 2021 and of course the one that occurred last week. And since that first hearing, which was dominated by Power Five and NCAA power player witnesses, You've seen this movement to disguise the Power Five interests into 2023, and we didn't see Charlie Baker. We didn't see Greg Sankey. We didn't see Linda Livingstone. We didn't see Jerry Moorhead. They were nowhere to be found. And at this hearing last week, instead of having the important decision makers and primary beneficiaries of the current Power Five football-controlled business model, we had people who couldn't be farther removed from that business model. And we had a victim class. This was a victim hearing, and it was purposefully misleading. So I guess the, um, the Power Five conferences got their money's worth from their high-priced lobbyists. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of college football, how it's evolved, and how it became such a dominant force in college sports. You know, we could go back to the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, but I really think we need to begin in the 1950s. That was the beginning of the television era. It was the beginning of the Walter Byers era, and the NCAA acquired meaningful infractions and enforcement jurisdiction. It's when the NCAA and its member institutions agreed to fix the cost of labor at the value of a full athletic scholarship. That happened in 1956. And of course, the other important feature of, of that time frame was that in 1951-52, Walter Byers, the first NCAA CEO, he was in that role for 37 years. He re- retired in 1987. He basically bullied the membership into agreeing to an NCAA monopoly over televised football. And the NCAA controlled the marketplace for televised football, except for the postseason. And as the TV market evolved and as live sports programming became uh, much more lucrative and much more important in the overall programming package, the football interests were saying, you know, wait a minute, <laughs> we're under the thumb of the NCAA here. We don't like it. And this was a Southern football movement in large measure, and they developed a rift between kind of the Southern schools and then schools in the Midwest and the West Coast. And in 1977, the powerful football interests formed the College Football Association. Initially, it was all big-time football interests, and then the Midwest and, and the Western interests kind of 
opted out because they thought that the Southern interests were moving too fast and they were threatening the NCAA. And of course, after that, you had the Board of Regents case in 1981, where Southern football interests led by the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma sued the NCAA to take down its monopoly over televised football. And they won. And I've described the post-Board of Regents relationship between the powerful football interests and the NCAA is one of a fairly comfortable detente. The big-time football interests stayed under the NCAA umbrella, but they increasingly began to assert their power and create separation and independence from the rest of the NCAA. And financially, Board of Regents gave the big-time football interests exclusive access to the football money. They were able to keep all that. They didn't share any of it with the NCAA, and then you began to see the NCAA aggressively, ruthlessly ex exploit the Division I men's basketball tournament because it lost its football empire and its only source of replacement revenue was the March Madness Tournament. And it, it has become one of the most important sporting events in American history, and that is due in part to the way that it has been marketed by the NCAA, because the NCAA bureaucratic state depends upon that money. And then, of course, the NCAA takes that money and they basically spread it around to downstream interests, lower level Division One, and then block grants to Divisions Two and Divisions Three. So now Divisions Two and Three view that money essentially now as an entitlement. And they think that any change in the business model that could threaten the current flow of money, the current status quo is a threat to their interests. And I think that that just creates a terrible dynamic for the athletes, the revenue-producing men's basketball players at the highest level in college basketball. They're, they're funding this welfare system, and they have no idea how it operates, and they have no idea that their money is being spent on initiatives that are directed to eliminating their rights as Americans because they're paying for the congressional campaign, they're paying for the lobbyists, they're paying for the lawyers, they're paying for the NCAA bureaucrats, they're paying for Charlie Baker's salary and all the largesse that is just flushed down the toilet at the NCAA national office. And it's just a terrible, unjust model. And then after some confusion in the marketplace, because the NCAA wasn't acting as a monopolist. You had the football market starting to settle out. You had the beginning of what became the Power Five conferences. And that really began in earnest, in my judgment, in 1997-98 in the transition from the Bowl Alliance to the Bowl Championship Series. But what was important about that transition is that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten brought the Rose Bowl into the postseason football market. And that really changed the complexion of postseason football. Then we had crazy conference realignment in the uh, 1990s and into the first decade of the 2000s that was driven almost exclusively on football interest and conferences trying to get as many football schools in their conference as possible so that they could make as much money through broadcast media deals with the big-time broadcast media companies. And on the backside of that, we had the creation of the Power Five, and that created a five-conference cartel over the college sports marketplace, the likes of which college sports had never seen. This was a juggernaut. This was a very important inflection point in the evolution of college sports and college football in particular. And then in 2012, we had the creation of the CFP, which provided a true national playoff. And the big-time football interests are now looking at 
the football playoff through the same lens that the NCAA looked at March Madness. Expand the field, generate as much revenue as you can. And the CFP, I think, is just beginning with its latest expansion to realize its market potential. And that is a product of powerful football interest controlling their own destiny, really independent of the NCAA. And then you had autonomy legislation in 2014, where the Power Five kind of further separated their interests under the NCAA umbrella and really created an association within an association for all intents and purposes. And it's important to understand that nearly every structural change in the business model, the regulatory model, has been the direct product of powerful football interests, getting what they need and getting what they want, and they have done it through brute force, and they've just imposed their will. And then another important event that occurred along this timeline was that in 1996, the powerful football interests pulled off a regulatory coup under the NCAA umbrella by eliminating one school, one vote legislation. And they went to a federated system that was top heavy with football interests and the various governing bodies were defined explicitly by their football affiliation and their football interests. And before I leave the football history lesson here, this very brief history lesson, I wanna identify some resources that I found very uh, helpful and, and I view as kind of essential reading on the history of college sports and the influence of football interests. So I'm just going to uh, give you these resources, and I'm going to give them to you in chronological order. First is a 1988 book titled Sports and Freedom, The Rise of Big-Time College Athletics by sports historian and professor Ronald Smith. Great book. The second, published in 1994, is Games Colleges Play by historian and professor John Thielen, subtitled Scandal and Reform in Intercollegiate Athletics. It goes through the Carnegie Report. That's another essential reading, I think, the 1929 Carnegie Report. It's hard to find. I think you have to go through the Carnegie Foundation website. The third book is Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes by Walter Byers. This was published in 1995. And Walter Byers, as I have discussed, was the first full-time NCAA president. He served in that role for 36 years. And he really is the architect of the modern college sports business model and regulatory model. Then in 1998, professors Alan Sack and Ellen Starowski wrote College Athletes for Hire, the Evolution and Legacy of the NCAA's Amateur Myth. Then in 2001, another book from Professor Ronald Smith titled Play by Play, Radio, Television, and Big Time College Sport. The, the introduction to play by play is really good and, uh, and talks in an important way about the relationship between the professionalization and commercialization of big-time college football and the values of higher education. And then the last book is The 50-Year Seduction, How Television Manipulated College Football from the Birth of the Modern NCAA to the Creation of the BCS. This was uh, written in 2004 by Keith Donovan, and it's a great read. This is uh, a great story. It tells the story of the uh, television era, and it provides some interesting insights into how the decision makers in, in the big-time college sports product really think about this enterprise behind the scenes. And the other thing that's really important to understand if you're going to be analyzing what's happening in Congress is Miles Brand's collegiate model. 
And Miles Brand was the NCAA president from 2003 to 2009. He was a former university president at Indiana University. And when he came into his role as the NCAA president, he was viewed as the guardian of the values of higher education. And in a span of five years, he turned that upside down with the collegiate model, something he began conceptualizing in 2003. Then it was announced in its fullest form in his State of the Association speech in 2006. And it was a really a grand rationalization for having professional sports operate under the umbrella of higher education. And under Brand's collegiate model as a financial model. He said that schools had an absolute duty and an imperative to maximize revenue in the profit sports, football and men's basketball. And that was okay. So long as you took that money and then you sent it downstream to fund non-revenue and Olympic sports and women's sports that couldn't pay for themselves. So on the input side, you could have the NBA and the NFL. That was okay. On the output side, you're acting consistent with your nonprofit mission because you're creating participation opportunities. That's how he expressed it. And the key quote from that 2006 State of the Association speech is, amateur defines the participant, not the enterprise. And Brand said that with gusto, with an exclamation point. And then he went on to, to justify this collegiate model. And it is a terrible model because nobody looks at that model and says, wait a minute, who are the people involved in this exchange? And the fact of the matter is the laborers in football, men's basketball are disproportionately African-American and the downstream beneficiaries of these participation opportunities are disproportionately white and comparatively well off. It's a terrible racialized model. But you hear it in these congressional hearings and in that hearing last week, Kaylee Mudge, the athlete uh, softball player from Florida State, she unapologetically said, look, if money goes to football and men's basketball players, it's coming out of my pocket. They're going to take my scholarship. And that was a perfect explication of Miles Brandt's collegiate model. But most people who watched that hearing had no idea where that came from, what it really means. And what the consequence of that business model is from a civil rights standpoint, from a social justice standpoint, and from a fundamental fairness standpoint. And there was nobody in that hearing room, nobody who understood that concept well enough to be able to say, wait a minute, let's look at exactly what's happening here. And this argument that you're making, and she wasn't alone, that came up through Jeff Duncan, Republican from South Carolina. It came up through uh, Buddy Carter. Republican from Georgia who waved into the hearing. And there were some other subtle invocations of the collegiate model that were really hard to tease out, but it was there. It was everywhere. That is running in the background. And if you don't understand that, you really can't understand how the NCAA and Power Five are packaging their arguments to get these three extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And I have said many times in this podcast that if you want to understand the truth of the business model, you have to read Miles Brand's uh, 2006 State of the Association speech. And you also have to read Professor Richard Southall and Professor Ellen Starowski's 2013 article, Cheering on the Collegiate Model, where they walk through how Miles Brand started to 
conceptualize it in, in 2003 and through his State of the Association speeches into 2006, how that evolved and, and what its true consequence is. Those two documents should be required reading for every university president, athletics director, or any decision maker at the institutional level. I would say the same for the conference decision makers and people at the NCAA, and certainly for our experts. If our experts out in the commentariat don't understand the collegiate model, I think that it would be a great thing for them to roll up their sleeves and really understand this concept because it's everywhere and it's invisible and it is a terrible, terrible model. And then the next thing that you need to understand to make sense of what's happening in Congress and what happened last week is how the NCAA and the Power Five came to view the multiple external regulatory threats that were appearing on the radar screen in the 21st century and how they made a fundamental change in both philosophy and tactics and how they dealt with external regulatory threats. So, you know, coming into the 21st century, you had the increasing professionalization and commercialization of big-time college sports, and that's reflected through Miles Brand's attempt to try to rationalize having professional sports and higher education through the collegiate model. But beginning in 2006, you had a really new and potent threat to the NCAA, and that was the first class action antitrust suit directly challenging NCAA compensation limits. That was the White case in California in 2006 challenging the scholarship limit set below the full cost of attendance that settled. And we move into O'Bannon, filed in 2009, the name, image, and likeness case, then into Austin that was reduced to education benefits. Now we have House on the West Coast pending right now. That's a another name, image, and likeness case. And of course, we have Johnson currently pending in the Third Circuit under the Fair Labor Standards Act. But all those cases pose a direct threat to the NCAA. And the antitrust cases are a real problem because in-house, for example, the one that's pending right now, the athletes are making a damages claim in addition to an injunction relief claim. And under federal antitrust laws, if you get a damage award, it automatically gets tripled. And they're arguing that there's a class of athletes that had their name, image, and likeness rights limited in a way that violates antitrust laws and that they incurred real damages, monetary damages, and that is a big, big problem for the NCAA. And then, of course, in 2014, we had the Northwestern unionization issue where the football team tried to unionize, and there was a proceeding in a federal administrative agency, and that's a completely separate threat to the NCAA and the Power Five and their regulatory authority and their business model. And there was fact-finding there, and the regional director and the hearing officer found that those football players, as a matter of fact, applying a common law test for employee status, yes, they were employees, and yes, they were entitled to form a union. And uh, that got kind of neutered by the national board. But you have the same threat now with this charge pending on the West Coast against USC, the Pac-12, and the NCAA, and it raises some other important issues as well. And then, of course, you have state legislatures coming in, and they've been a wild card because they've been all over the map, and they change as the market changes, and that's been the case with these state name, image, and likeness laws. But SB 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act, the California law, passed in the fall of 2019, that was really the kind of fulcrum for the state laws jumping in and forcing the NCAA to change its behavior. All these external regulatory threats are so important to understand because they are forcing the NCAA and the Power Five to do things that they don't want to do because they want to have iron-fisted control over the labor force and the marketplace and the regulatory model, and they don't want anybody coming in and telling them what they should be doing. 
particularly federal courts, federal agencies, and state legislatures. And of course, then as the athletes have made very marginal progress through these lawsuits, and you have the new no market with the interim policy, you also have free markets coming in as an external regulatory threat. And they may be the most powerful, potent external threat of all because they've ripped right through all the lies the NCAA and Power Five have been telling for decades now that whatever the new next change is, they said this about the cost of attendance scholarships for crying out loud, which they now hold up in front of Congress as this wonderful thing that they did for athletes. They militantly opposed that scholarship in a white and through O'Bannon. And now they claim it as their own. But that scholarship is the direct product of federal antitrust litigation, not magnanimity by the NCAA and the Power Five. So rolling into 2019, the NCAA was faced with a choice, particularly after the Mark Walker bill was put on the table. And Walker's a Republican from North Carolina. He had this bill that said that if the NCAA didn't offer meaningful name, image, and likeness benefits, then they would lose their tax-exempt status under the IRS code. It wasn't a very strong bill from a legal standpoint, but it had a broad bipartisan biracial face and it scared the hell out of the NCAA. And then of course you had SB 206, the California name, image, and likeness law in the hopper, and that was coming into shape. And so the Power Five and the NCAA were faced with this really fundamental choice. Do they continue to deal with these external regulatory threats as one-off whack-a-mole threats, or do they come up with a comprehensive strategy that can eliminate all of these external regulatory threats in one fell swoop. And it was in this time frame that they decided that they were going to go big, go bold. They were going to go on offense and they were going to launch a congressional campaign to eliminate any and all external regulatory threats and in the process end the athletes' rights movement. And what the NCAA did so effectively, and they did this primarily through this body they created in May of 2019, just a couple months after the Walker Bill comes out in March, called the Federal and State Legislation Working Group. It was a Board of Governors working group. And they were trying to co-opt the discussion, and they did that. They wanted to control the language. And that secret meeting on December 10th of 2019 that I talked about in the last episode among Power Five conference commissioners and select Power Five presidents, they formulated their strategy to go on offense. That's when they really began to formulate how they were going to go about getting what they wanted to eliminate all these external regulators in one fell swoop. And heading out of that secret meeting and, and this strategy, they're rolling into 20. 20 with a rapidly evolving tactical approach to how they wanted to manage their congressional campaign. And so this case is being built through the summer of 2020 in these four hearings that occurred that frames the issues through the interests of the Power Five and the NCAA and cemented in by these kabuki theater hearings that occurred with Republican senators from the South calling the shots. You had Roger Wicker, head of commerce, Republican from Mississippi, Lindsey Graham, judiciary, a Republican from South Carolina, Lamar Alexander, Republican from Tennessee. And uh, I've talked before about why are we in those three committees? Of all the committees in the United States Senate, why those three? Because those are the three where you get the three death provisions. You get uh, preemption from commerce, you get antitrust immunity from judiciary, you get your no employee prohibition from the health, education, labor, and pensions 
committee. But as I go through this timeline of important events, it's important to understand that there were a number of separate but interconnected pathways that were operating at the same time that the NCAA and Power Five were negotiating. And uh, Congress was only one of them. So, you know, we had the congressional pathway. But then we also had, importantly, a voluntary rulemaking pathway, a federal litigation pathway, and then a, a public relations pathway. And in the voluntary regulatory pathway, the NCAA and the Power Five were leading stakeholders to believe that the NCAA was going to voluntarily change its name, image, and likeness rules to make them more permissive and to allow athletes to receive meaningful compensation from their name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA really ramped up the propaganda through the work of this federal and state legislation working group, and they issued an interim report in October of 2019 that was then adopted a few days later by the NCAA Board of Governors, and the media treated that as an actual rules change when they did no such thing. They were just kind of buying time to try to get this protective federal legislation. But as part of that dishonest campaign on voluntary rulemaking, they announced that they were going to set a, a deadline of January of 2021. And then by the convention, the annual convention in January of 2021, the NCAA would have legislation ready to present at that convention and that it could be adopted and we'd have a whole new age in name, image, and likeness. So we have the voluntary rulemaking pathway. We also have the litigation pathway and Austin is proceeding through this timeline, largely invisible. It was very quiet and people weren't talking a lot about Austin really until the United States Supreme Court accepted the, the case for review on December 16th of 2020. I'm going to talk about the importance of that in, in the timeline. But Austin was really important because that was another pathway through which the NCAA and Power Five were going to get antitrust immunity and eliminate federal courts from the regulatory landscape and, and remove that threat to the NCAA's regulatory authority and business model. They were working on multiple tracks here. And then the fourth pathway is public relations. And the false face that the NCAA put and the Power Five put on this whole nil compensation debate. It, it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with nil compensation because they never intended to offer it. And the timeline, I think, establishes that pretty clearly. And now when you reverse engineer it, it it's, I think, hard to come away with a, a different interpretation of what's happened since 2019. So you have these four pathways operating at the same time, and they are intimately connected. And that's why it's so important to, to look at the timeline and see how interconnected they are and how this has been a very coordinated, sophisticated, time-charted plan to end the athletes' rights movement. So I brought us up to this hearing in February of 2020, and that was a dog and pony show. There were, I think, six witnesses, only one witness testifying on behalf of the athletes. The rest were NCAA insiders. When you look at the witness list from that very first hearing and compare it to the witness list that we saw last week, there are two completely different strategies there. And in that first hearing, you had the NCAA president, the Power Five Conference Commissioner, Power Five University president. You had a token student athlete who really wasn't representative of the true athlete interests that 
are relevant in this discussion. And then you had one advocate arguing on behalf of the athletes. And of course, you had Anthony Gonzalez, a Congress member who was the very first witness. But that was the bulldozer approach. That was the power player approach. That's the most honest portrayal of the interest behind this whole campaign. What we saw last week, you had one Power Five Conference Athletics Director, the only really institutional interest that's relevant to this discussion, and the rest of the people were completely irrelevant, quite frankly, and they were equity interests. So in February of 2020, it was get your foot in the door, set the narrative, and they won. They did it. They won. And that narrative carried through all these hearings in 2020 with very little pushback from the Democrats. The pushback didn't come until the third hearing in 2020 on July 22nd. When Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal said, what's going on here? You want this very narrow name, image, and likeness bill. And that was one of the primary purposes of setting the narrative. They didn't want to talk about these other issues. They wanted this to be name, image, and likeness only, which they knew was a Trojan horse that would get them these three death provisions. So Blumenthal and Booker are saying, wait a minute, what are some big, big issues here? The athlete voice, health and safety, revenue sharing. And that was really the genesis for the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And uh, Graham says, oh, get me something, get me something. (laughs) I mean, the the Democrat response was very weak. It was on the fly. They were making it up as they went along. And it was not the product of a careful, deliberate, sophisticated campaign to make a case for what the athletes needed in Congress. And that still hasn't occurred. And that's one of the tragedies of the way this discussion has evolved. Because when the Democrats take control of the Senate, in uh, January of 2021, they don't really go back and say, wait a minute, we need to start from scratch here. We need to look honestly at how this discussion has evolved. What exactly the Power Five and the NCAA are asking for here, these extraordinary, unprecedented asks in the context of college sports. And we just need to flush everything that's happened since the beginning of 2020 down the memory hole. And we're going to go back and, and look at this with fresh eyes. They didn't do that. And in part, in my judgment, the reason they didn't do that is because they're not motivated. And when I talk about Maria Cantwell, who's probably the most important decision maker right now because she is the chair of the Commerce Committee. She's a Democrat from Washington. And she's in those clips in the opening montage. She's a perfect example of how flaccid the Democrats' response has been, and she doesn't understand the issues. She's not motivated. She's not engaged. And she has the most powerful decision-making seat in all of Congress right now. And if if you don't understand that, then you, you can't understand what the dynamics were in that hearing last week. Maria Cantwell has been very compliant. And Roger Wicker, who was the chair before her, and Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, who's been very influential in these discussions, have been in her ear from January of 2021 to the present. And when when you pay close attention to what she has said in the hearings where she was the chair of the Commerce Committee, you see that loud and clear. And then at around the time of that February 2020 hearing, then you have to take a hard look at and a detailed look at the lobbying activity and how the lobbyists were onboarded to commandeer and navigate this discussion in the Senate. I've talked about the lobbying power. I've talked about that a couple of episodes ago, but the timing is so important because within a month of that first hearing by March 9th of 2020, the Power Five conferences had onboarded two important lobbying firms, a subject matter formerly known as Elmendorf Ryan, and then this important boutique firm, Marshall & Pop, that had very important connections to Mitch McConnell and John 
Cornyn. And then in addition to those two firms, each of the Power Five conferences brought on a, a third lobbying firm, or in some cases a fourth. And these were really heavy hitters. I mean, these were big time power players. So within two months of that initial hearing in February of 2020, there were eight lobbying firms working for the NCAA and the Power Five. And four of those eight are ranked in the top 20 lobbying firms in the United States, including number one and number two. Number one was Brownstein Hyatt. They've been working for the NCAA and had been before that February 2020 hearing. And then number two is Aiken Gump. They represent the SEC. They were brought on board two days after that February 11th hearing. And then in February, of course, just a couple of weeks after that first hearing, we have COVID coming onto the scene. And in March, the entire world was on lockdown, and it was one of the biggest healthcare crises in American history, and it caused all kinds of disruption in our economy. The basic functioning of our economy, the vital organs, were on life support for almost a year. And you know, when the NCAA is canceling the March Madness tournament and you know, all the sports products, both amateur and professional, are, are trying to figure out what to do, the uh, Power Five and the NCAA do not miss a beat in their monomaniacal quest to end the athletes' rights movement through congressional intervention. On April 17th, 2020, in really the peak of the lockdown, the NCAA Federal State Legislation Working Group issues its final report, and it's like a 35-page document. It's written by lawyers for lawyers, and there is a section on Congress, the role of Congress, and in that document, they ask for the three death provisions. I don't think a lot of people were paying attention to what the hell the NCAA Federal State Legislation Working Group was doing in April of 2020, but that's exactly what they were doing. And then shortly thereafter, on May 23rd of 2020, all Power Five conference commissioners send a joint letter to Congress, both chambers, the leaders in both chambers, where they are really pressing the gas on trying to get something done in the Senate and get a bill out of the Senate that's going to give them the three death provisions. And they repeated that time was of the essence. They said, we don't disagree with what the NCAA is doing. We need to speed this thing up. Time is of the essence. And they had attached to that letter a set of quote-unquote consensus principles. And there was no consensus. The issues hadn't even been discussed publicly. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. The final report hadn't been out for a month. And the Power Five are coming in and saying, there is consensus on all of these issues. And we need antitrust immunity. We need athletes can't be employees. We need preemption of state laws. And again, this is in the height of the lockdown fear. And we were sheltering in place. The Power Five conference commissioners want to press the gas and ask the United States Senate and the House of Representatives to stop what they're doing so that the Power Five can get a piece of federal legislation that would treat laborers and football and men's basketball as second-class citizens. Nobody's talked about this campaign on those terms. And I think it's really important to step back and, and look honestly at what these people were doing and the context in which they were doing it. And they don't give a damn. They just wanted to get what they needed to get, which reflects the historic arrogance of the big-time football interest. And then about a month later, the state of Florida jumps into the arena. And the, Florida's played a really interesting role in the evolution of events that have occurred since March of 2019. And on June 12th, of 2020, you had the Florida State Legislature coming out with its name, image, and likeness law. And that was really important because at the time, there were only two other 
no laws on the books, the California law and then a Colorado law, which wasn't worth the paper it was written on because it deferred to the decision-making of the NCAA and incorporated all their no limitations. But the Florida bill was important for two reasons. One, you had a very powerful state entering the name, image, and likeness arena, doing it through SEC interests. And two, the California bill, which was really the only legitimate threat at that time, it wasn't set to go into effect until 2023. And the reason for that, and this is stated explicitly in the preamble to that law, they wanted to give the NCAA time to change its own rules. So that was a very forgiving timeline. And the, you know, the NCAA, I don't think I mentioned this, in response to that California law, the NCAA was saying, we're going to sue you under the Dormant Commerce Clause, the state of California. You know, we're going we're to sue this massive state and try to get that law struck down. But I don't think if the NCAA had gone in and filed a lawsuit in 2019 that it would have gone anywhere because I think a federal judge would have said, wait a minute, this law doesn't go into effect for three years. So the issue is not ripe. We don't issue advisory opinions in federal courts. There has to be a real case or controversy. And so this Florida bill, which was set to go into effect July 1st of 2021, completely changed that time frame because uh, we're looking at really a year from the passage of that law. And in my judgment, that plays right into that Power Five letter just a month before where they're saying we need to press the gas. And one way to accelerate the discussion is to make the threat more immediate. And I think that happened, whether it was purposeful or not, that was the consequence of the passage of that Florida law on June 12th. And then six days later, on June 18th, Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, introduces a bill in the United States Senate, the very first bill that was introduced, that contains the three death provisions, including the federal preemption of state laws. So you had this state bill introduced on June 12th through a Republican state legislature. And Ron DeSantis made a big speech and a big deal about it. He's a Republican. And then six days after that, you have a Republican senator from Florida introducing the first piece of legislation in the United States Congress. And that legislation would have nullified the Florida law that was just passed six days earlier. The practical effect of that Florida law was that it created this sky is falling narrative and it was covered like the moon landing. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That I think was part of its intended effect. That's my personal belief that this accelerated the timeline. It created the sky is falling narrative. And if you're really cynical, it also created an alternative pathway for a dormant commerce clause lawsuit. So you had this bizarre activity in the state of Florida. Then we had a hearing on July 1st in the full Senate Commerce Committee couple of the clips at the beginning in the montage are from that hearing. Then we had the hearing in Judiciary on J July 22nd, then the hearing in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee on September 15th. And in both of those hearings, like the Judiciary Committee hearing chaired by Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, it was titled Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. So they weren't even really talking specifically about nil. They also had a component on sports betting. And when you listen to what Graham had to say, he was openly hostile to name, image, and likeness. I think that protecting the integrity of college sports related to name, image, and likeness, and then secondarily to betting, that sports betting component of the hearing lasted maybe 20 minutes. It was really not that well put together. It was an afterthought. And then that hearing in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee on September 15th, chaired by Lamar Alexander, Republican from Tennessee. He's since retired. He could not have been more hostile to the interests of the athletes than a United States senator could be. It was just painful. And when you go back now, and looking back with the benefit of hindsight, and you look at how Graham and Alexander 
talked about the issues, man, it's a really bad look because all of that rhetoric sounds like it came from Southern senators from the 1950s. And then we have Gonzalez coming out with the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill on September 20th. And I don't think that that timing was coincidental. And when you pay real close attention to what Gonzalez said in that very first hearing where he was the first witness in February of 2020, and then you look at what Lindsey Graham said on July 22nd, and he told Blumenthal and Booker to you know get him something, which turned out to be the Athletes' Bill of Rights, but he wanted it by September. I think they had these hearings planned out. They had them scheduled. And there was a purposeful timeline here. And the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill was going to be the next piece of legislation proposed after that September 15th help hearing. And five days later, you get the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. It didn't just spring up in those five days. It was in the hopper. It was ready to go. And it was released after the Power Five and the NCAA had laundered all of their narratives through a Republican-controlled Senate. And then, of course, we have the elections in November. And when you look at the Power Five's attempt to accelerate the timeline, you really see the importance of, of that, you know, looking at it through their interests. Because November produced an unexpected result. I, I think most people thought that the Republicans were going to keep the Senate, but the Senate was hanging in the balance with these Georgia special elections. And all of a sudden, the Power Five NCAA strategy doesn't look so good if they lose control of the Senate. That's a whole new ball game because they've run this through the Republican senators. And on the backside of that, there is now some pushback from the Democrats. And you have the Athletes' Bill of Rights being conceptualized and you have it coming into existence. And so we're moving into December now. And then some really important things happen that, that influence how the Power Five and NCAA step back, look at their chessboard, and reassess. On December 10th, we have Roger Wicker introducing his bill, the first iteration of it. He re-released it two years later in September of 2022, and it has the three death provisions. It's the worst of the worst, that and the Jerry Moran bill, which was introduced in February of 2021. And then another really important thing happens in the timeline, and that's on December 16th of 2020, the United States Supreme Court accepts the Austin case for review. And a lot of people, myself included, thought that when you look at the way that case was framed on appeal and the issues that were presented to the U.S. Supreme Court, it looked to me like there was some reasonable chance that the U.S. Supreme Court was going to give the NCAA and Power Five some form of judicially created antitrust immunity. And I think the NCAA felt the same way. So heading into the end of December, we have this January deadline coming up for voluntary rulemaking on NIL. They're supposed to do that at the convention that begins on January 9th of 2021. According to some of the information that came from the NCAA, the NCAA Division I Council, who was responsible for crafting that kind of legislation, had a piece of legislation that they were comfortable with and they wanted to present at that convention in January of 2021. So we're heading into January, and then on January 5th, 2021, we have the Georgia special elections, and the Democrats win. The Democrats have technical control of the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate, but they hold the White House, so they get to select the committee chairs, a very powerful prerogative, and they basically have the ability to set the legislative agenda, but they were also operating under a power-sharing agreement similar to the one that they had in 2001, when we had the same situation, a 50-50 split. And that power-sharing agreement that was, that was struck in 2020 was really guaranteed gridlock on any issue that was a partisan issue. And this had become a partisan issue. There's no denying that. So the Senate flips, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, between January 5th and the beginning of the 
NCAA annual convention on January 9th, literally out of nowhere comes this dispute between the head of the Trump administration's antitrust division, a guy named Macon Del Harim, who used to work for Brownstein Hyatt, the NCAA's lobbying firm. He didn't work on the NCAA team, but he was fishing in that pond because he did antitrust lobbying for some big big tech companies. I think he worked for Google, for example. But all of a sudden, these news stories break that Macon Del Harim and the Justice Department are telling the NCAA and Mark Emmert to stand down on voluntary rulemaking due to antitrust concerns about what may be in the proposed legislation. And there had been no suggestion of that, not even a hint of that, rolling into January. And so then Mark Emmert essentially issues an edict saying that we are being instructed, we are being directed by the United States Justice Department and the Antitrust Division to stand down on voluntary rulemaking. And so they did. I know they tried to make it look like the divisions had independently come to this decision, but this was a directive from Mark Emmert. But the media just pumped the propaganda and the NCAA had no choice here. They really had to stand down because the Justice Department had concerns about these proposed nil rules changes and also the transfer rule issues, that there was some antitrust issue there that had to be resolved, which made no sense. It made no sense because the limits on those two issues, nil and transfer, were going to be lessened, which could only decrease the antitrust implications, not make them worse. But today, even today, that narrative is alive and well. And you hear the NCAA, you hear Mark Emmert saying, look, we had no choice. We had to stand down. But the truth of why the NCAA chose to stand down and their lobbyists wanted them to pull back was based on two things. One, they lost their control of the narrative in the Senate. There was a Democrat Senate. They weren't going to be able to just steamroll through a Republican Senate to get a bill on the floor and vote it on. The second thing is they also now believe they had a free shot in the Austin case because they were asking for absolute judicially created antitrust immunity in Austin. And if they had gotten that from the U.S. Supreme Court, that's huge. I mean, that is a game changer. And we're probably not having any of the discussions that we're having today because that would have solved so much of the NCAA's problems as they saw it. And again, because of the way that case was framed, there was no threat that the United States Supreme Court was going to strike down all amateurism-based limits and just open the athletes' market for the value of their services to the free markets. That, that couldn't happen the way the case was framed. And so they really had a free shot at antitrust immunity. And if they lost the Austin appeal, as they did, basically then they have to deal with a permissive benefit, this education benefit, which was permitted but not required, that really had very little consequence financially to the Power Five. And interestingly, in a podcast interview just after the Austin decision came out, the Supreme Court decision came out, and that was on June 21st, in the June 24th podcast interview, Macon Del Harim said that that pretext that the NCAA used, that they were directed to stand down on nil and transfers, was not true. He said it, that, that he had never told them that they couldn't go forward. And that narrative was a false narrative. And Del Harim believed the NCAA's motivation there was that they had this free shot. He called it a free shot in the goal in Austin on antitrust immunity, judicially created antitrust immunity. He didn't talk about what was happening in Congress, but I believe that was just as important as this free shot they had. But Mr. Del Harim's most important observation in that June 24th podcast interview is 
the reason that the NCAA pulled back on nil rulemaking and was waiting for this Austin decision. And he said that if the NCAA had gotten judicially created antitrust immunity, then it would have given them the ability to do nothing on name, image, and likeness. Because with antitrust immunity, the NCAA could impose its compensation limits on nil or anything else without any legal responsibility or accountability, which is the truth of the uh, NCAA's use of name, image, and likeness in their attempt to get these three federal protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement. And that is the, the best evidence that the, the NCAA never intended to do anything on nil voluntarily. And then heading into June of 2021, you had some pressure building because the Supreme Court was going to have to issue its opinion by the end of June. That's when the term ended. So that was going to happen any day in June. It's like any day on the Austin case. And then you also had this July 1st deadline when the Florida law and a bunch of other laws that came on board after were going to go into effect on July 1st of 2021. So we then have another hearing in the Senate on June 9th of 2021. And this was a preemption-only hearing. And this is where you really begin to see how ill-equipped Maria Cantwell was to manage these issues, how ill-informed she was, and how Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran were just running circles around her. This was emergency preemption. And they brought in a, a bunch of people. It was a five-to-one ratio of people saying, Yes, we need preemption. Only one person at that hearing said, no, the federal government should stay out of it. And he got excoriated by Roger Wicker. But this was a dog and pony show for preemption only. And Cantwell allowed that to occur. And I think, you know, on the backside of that, she got some pushback because I think the NCAA and Power Five felt like they had a shot after that hearing. And then a few days later, Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, who's on that Commerce Committee, he took to the floor of the full Senate basically begging for preemption. And as a result of that hearing, Cantwell got some pushback because up to this point, not a single current athlete or recently graduated athlete had testified in any of these hearings. And it was really a glaring omission. And so Cantwell puts on the calendar a hearing for June 17th that was going to include some athletes. And that was one of the things that came up at the June 9th hearing. He said, wait a minute, we're making this decision that's going to forever impair the rights of athletes. And nobody's asked the athletes what they want. And that, of course, was a purposeful omission because the Power Five and the NCAA don't want athletes talking about their experience, particularly profit athletes in football, men's basketball at the Power Five level. So this hearing is put on the calendar. And just before that hearing, we get a public temper tantrum from Roger Wicker, who is, you know, the ranking member, the Republican from Mississippi. And he is just angry as he can be that he didn't have control over the witness list, which is, I think, an, an acknowledgement that at that June 9th hearing, he did have control over the witness list. So Maria Cantwell's getting all this pushback, and she throws this hearing together on, on the fly that wound up having three athletes, all African-American women, and then the father of athlete, also African-American, whose son died in an abusive football workout. He died from heat stroke. So you know, we still didn't have the profit athlete sitting behind the table, but these female athletes were very good. And they made some important points that were directly counter to the narrative that had been built since February of 2020 in these hearings. 
So Wicker leads what uh, amounted to a Republican boycott of that hearing. And he said, we're taking our ball and going home because we didn't have control over the process. The only Republican who attended was Jerry Moran from Kansas, who had been buddy-buddy with Cantwell. And uh, they were going to be the bipartisan team to solve this issue. And he made a cameo. He was in and out of there and really didn't add anything to the hearing. But I think he made that cameo because he thought that yeah, he was best positioned at that time to stay in Cantwell's ear and to get from her everything that the Republican senators have wanted all along. But that hearing kind of stalled the momentum from the June 9th hearing. And then, of course, on June 21st, just four days after that June 17th hearing, we have the unanimous decision from the Supreme Court in Austin. And again, even though it was a limited ruling, the unanimity surprised almost everybody, myself included. And I think that it was perceived as a substantial body blow to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And that just completely changed the dynamic. And the campaign in the Senate, which looked like it may have had legs, even running through Maria Cantwell, was over. And so the NCAA, Power Five, they pull out of Congress, essentially. And then, of course, on June 30th of 2021, just seven hours and 40 minutes before the July 1st deadline, when all these state nil laws were going to go into effect, the NCAA dumped all of its nil garbage at the feet of the institutions through the interim policy. And it's so interesting how over time narratives change and the uh, NCAA's interim policy has been hailed as a victory for athletes. And, and it, it's simply not true. The NCAA had no choice and they were just fighting like hell up to the very last hours of the month of June in 2021 to prevent that no market from coming into existence. And, and when I'm talking to people now, including People who are quote unquote experts in the space or people who are, are decision makers in college sports at the institutional level, they are under the misapprehension that the interim policy is a rules change. It is not. The NCAA to this day, after decades of talking about nil, hasn't changed a single word of bylaw 12.5, which contains the limitations on name, image, and likeness compensation. That policy, that interim policy, not rules change, is interim until one of two things happens. Either the NCAA actually goes forward with voluntary rulemaking, which we now know they are not and they never intended to, or two, they get a bailout from Congress. They get what they're seeking right now from the Senate and the House. And so as of July 1st, 2021, we have the new nil market being governed by state laws in the states that have a, a nil law or executive orders in states that have an executive nil order or through the interim policy. And, and that led to some very interesting jockeying it and maneuvering. And some of the states that were so proud of their nil laws, uh, like the state of Florida, Alabama, they either outright repealed those laws or substantially modified them to create as much flexibility in the nil market for, at the institutional level so that they could remain competitive as they perceived it in the talent acquisition market. And then we're heading forward into the end of 2021. And then in September of 2021, we have this hearing in the House, the first hearing in the House, the seventh out of eight overall. And it was really a courtesy to Anthony Gonzalez. I talked about that a couple episodes ago. I'm not going to go through it. And then, of course, we have the reaction 
to Austin at the NCAA and you have this constitutional makeover and they're in a battle for relevance and all this stuff. And I've talked quite a bit about that. I'm not going to go into that in much detail, but it was just another power five power play. And on the backside of the constitutional makeover and through the work of this transformation committee, the big time football interest heavily weighted towards the SEC are running the NCAA and the voluntary regulation of college sports. And then of course, through 2022, we're heading into the midterm elections. And in the run-up, you had all kinds of propaganda coming out from the Power Five football interests. And you had Wicker re-releasing a bill in, in September. And in an interview, he's saying that if any bill that has uh, employee status for athletes or anything close to it, he's going to filibuster it. You know, <laughs> He was pretty clear on what he wanted. You had Nick Saban going on the tour. You had Tommy Tuberville and Joe Manchin coming out of the woodwork. And all that was coordinated. And it was directly themed to the sky is falling. This nil marketplace is killing us. It's pay for play. It's recruiting inducement. The transfer market is open free agency. All the talking points while refusing to acknowledge that while they're still pumping out the sky is falling narratives. And we are in the midst of an historic bull market financially in college sports. I mean, money's just falling from the sky and the demand for live sports content is at its apex. You have new revenue streams coming on board, new technologies, and you have all these important decision makers in Congress and big time football and in the sports media, the compliant sports media, just pumping out the propaganda in the lead up to the midterms. And I think that the Republicans fully expected to take the Senate. And a lot of people were saying they had a pr pretty much a lock on the House. And so you're looking at a, the possibility of a Republican-controlled Congress. And if that had happened, then we're not having the discussion that we're having today. And there's a bill teed up, probably something like the Wicker Bill, that is going to be rammed through Congress. And all they need is a couple of Democrats to be on board with it, and they can put a bipartisan label on it. And that's all they need. And that's why I say there's been substantial progress made in the evolution of this congressional campaign. And the NCAA and Power Five have made much more progress than people understand. And they're counting votes. Their lobbyists are counting votes. That's, it's that simple. And they don't give a damn what these experts think. <laughs> you know, you can tw Twitter yourself to death, but uh, the lobbyists and the lawyers and the people in, the, in Congress who are doing the NCAA and Power Five's bidding, they're counting votes. It's as simple as that. So the midterms come and go. And we have a Democrat-controlled Senate, and now a Republican-controlled House. And then we have this second secret meeting on December 13th, 2022, just a few months ago, where the Power Five, through the ACC's outside lawyer, maybe he's the inside lawyer, I'm not sure what role he plays, but uh, the ACC's lawyer does this memorandum on where the Power Five see the congressional campaign, what they want, and you have a much different face on it because half the people in the decision-making chairs are lawyers and lobbyists. But they say, we need to go to the House because that's where the Republicans are. That's where we can have control over the process. And that's so important, control over the process. And they're also saying we really are looking at something along the lines of the Wicker Bill. That's where we want to land. And the Wicker Bill is the Death Star for the athletes. And then we want to make sure that nothing's in writing. We want all this running through Jim Phillips, the ACC conference commissioner. No texts, no emails. There's not going to be a paper trail here. Just stunning, stunning. And this is all occurring under the umbrella and the values of higher education. And then you have this hearing last week, which is the direct product of the thinking that was in that ACC memo from just a couple of months before. And if you look back at that hearing last week now, 
with the benefit of the information I've just gone through, I think that hearing may make more sense. And the dissonance between what that hearing was advertised to be and what it actually was starts to come into focus. The Power 5 football interests were simply not in that hearing room. And they're not going to be in a hearing room going forward because that's not what the beneficiaries of this business model want people to focus on because you don't have any sympathy for the Power 5 football interests. You might have sympathy for witnesses like Kaylee Mudge, a white female who plays softball at Florida State, or a president at a Division II HBCU. Those are equity interests. And when I talk about that hearing last week, I'm going to go through it in my next episode. I'm going to talk about how those five witnesses packaged together created a really powerful equity phase that had absolutely nothing to do with the truth of the business model because Ms. Mudge is a beneficiary of this dysfunctional business model and Miles Brandt's collegiate model. She's not a victim and she can't be a victim unless the universities choose to make her a victim by not funding women's sports and complying with Title IX. So now let me real quickly go through the montage, the opening clips. And the first three were from that very first hearing in February of 2020. And the first is from Anthony Gonzalez, the very first person to testify in Congress over these eight hearings. And that is important in understanding the overall legislative strategy for the NCAA and the Power Five. And Gonzalez was a very good witness. He was poised. He was persuasive. He's a great guy, has a great background. But he was very, very good at establishing two important themes. One is consensus. Everybody agrees. And that witness list was designed to reinforce consensus. That's been a tactic that the NCAA and Power Five have used throughout this campaign. Just consensus, consensus, consensus. And they try to manufacture consensus through these hearings and then also through selected communications from the only athlete voice that the NCAA can control and that it does control and that it recognizes. And I'll talk more about that when I get to this ACC letter. But Gonzalez says, there's consensus that something must be done and that federal action is needed. It is no longer a question of if, but rather when and how Congress must act to preserve the collegiate sports system. And he's talking about the revered tradition and how important sports are culturally and, and all this stuff. But he starts with two crucial, crucial themes that have really framed the congressional debate. One is everybody agrees, nobody disagrees. And if you disagree, you're outside the mainstream. You're the outlier, okay? Something must be done, and it's not a question of whether Congress should be involved. It's a question of how we regulate at the federal level through the United States Congress to preserve the, this jewel that's so important to Americans. And then he goes through pretty clearly, without referencing the buzzwords, he makes the case for preemption, getting states out of the regulatory field the case for antitrust immunity, and, and the case for athletes can't be employees. Gonzalez says, legislation must also guarantee that student-athletes are still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using NIL to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. And then the last thing that he says in that clip that's really important, he says, I have begun to draft federal legislation in the House to allow student-athletes to profit from their NIL and create one uniform national standard. So what comes out of this is, yes, we support NIL. We're going to do everything we can. But 
what's not fully disclosed is that the guardrails that we need to put around this are going to make it almost impossible for athletes to make any name, image, and likeness compensation. But when he says, I am drafting legislation, that is a tell. So there was obviously a coordinated plan in place. I believe those hearings were scheduled out in advance. They knew exactly what they wanted to do and what they needed to get from these three committees. The next clip is from Bowlesby, former commissioner of the Big 12 Conference. And his task was to run through all of the amazing things that athletes get. Although he doesn't specifically say he's talking about Power 5 football, men's basketball players, that's clearly what he's talking about because he makes an oblique reference to the autonomy legislation. And a lot of what he describes here comes from that. Another tell is that he talks about Pell Grants as this wonderful thing that athletes get because they can stack that on top of their scholarship. And Pell Grants have nothing to do with your status as an athlete. It depends on your financial circumstances. And if you meet the criteria for a Pell Grant, which is basically poverty level family income, then you get some help from the federal government. And I think if you were to do a statistical analysis on Pell Grant recipients among Power 5 athletes, you're going to find that disproportionately, they are African-American athletes in football, men's basketball, and women's basketball. But they don't want to say that out loud. But the way that Bowlesby runs through all of these things, they get tuition, they get this great education, they get trips, they get incidental living expenses, they get the cost of attendance scholarship, they may get degree completion opportunities, they get unlimited meals and uh, transitional health care, all this stuff. And this talking point, which is not unique to Bob Bowlesby, you hear it from Mark Emmert, I've heard it from Greg Sankey, you hear it from a lot of stakeholders who are trying to delegitimize the labor pool in football and men's basketball at the Power Five level. And it is a racialized delegitimization narrative, not just because of the demographic of Power Five football and men's basketball, but when you invoke the Pell Grant, you are talking about a pool of labors that are disproportionately African-American. And they just zip through those talking points as if it's just what reasonable person wouldn't see it this way. Look at all these amazing things they get. And of course, when they do that, they're also not talking about the true value of the athlete's services. They're comparing this list of benefits to what the athletes didn't have before, which was next to nothing. And that theme just gets spun right through. That actually came up last week. Buddy Carter tried to make that argument. And we heard it in very subtle ways from some other witnesses. And there was nobody on that witness panel who understood the consequence of what that really meant and the civil rights and social justice issues that were embedded in those dog whistle comments. Then again, at that same hearing, we have Mark Emmert talking about the unique character and quality of college sports that serves student athletes so well. And then he says, Senators, we may need your help to achieve our goals of preserving the integrity of college sports and the collegiate model and the student athlete and amateurism and all that stuff. Amateurism was not a dirty word yet, you know, and it was used liberally in this hearing. But all three of those clips came from the same hearing. The takeaway from that is just how organized the messaging is and how each witness was putting these NCAA Power Five lobbyist-inspired talking points into the discussion from the very beginning, and it worked because those narratives have shaped the entire discussion in Congress. And what we heard last week was really no different at a values level from what these witnesses were saying in February of 2020. So now I want to go to the next set of clips. These 
come from the July 1st, 2020 hearing in the full Senate Commerce Committee chaired by Roger Wicker. And the first clip is from him. And he says, I approach the topic of today's hearing with an abundance of caution and reluctance, even skepticism and trepidation on this issue. Congress might well heed the time-honored Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And what Wicker was saying there is that we need to preserve the status quo. This is a status quo preservation narrative that he put on the table from the very beginning. That was the lens through which all of the testimony was delivered at that hearing. And it was, you need to be skeptical. You need to be cautious. You need to be reluctant. You need to feel trepidation on this issue because you should be scared. And the reason you should be scared is that it's going to destroy this jewel that we have, this college sports jewel and the sacred principles of amateurs and the collegiate model and the student athlete. And when you frame it that way, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, that's a powerful rhetorical device. And I I think it's pretty effective. And then in that same hearing, we moved to Maria Cantwell, who at the time was the ranking member in the minority in the Senate, and she is a Democrat from Washington. And this is such an important quote because this gives you a window into how ill-suited Maria Cantwell is in terms of her knowledge base and her fund of knowledge on these important issues. And she made it clear in that opening comment that she doesn't even know the language. She can't even say the buzzwords correctly, much less really understand what the business model is all about. But what's important about this is not just that it exposes her ignorance. I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but she just hasn't been educated on these issues. It also shows that Her instinct is to preserve the amateurism model and the amateurism principles. And she says this explicitly. And she is now sitting in the most important decision-making chair in Congress. So she says, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I consider myself a sports fan and definitely a collegial sports fan. I think she meant college sports fan, but certainly one that sides with wanting to have amateur athleticism, not amateur athletics, amateur athleticism and to make sure that we're keeping amateur athleticism. She wants to preserve amateur athleticism. God bless her. I mean, you know, I I laughed at that a little bit, but this is important because it just goes to show you how little some of these important decision makers really know about the business model. And she says, I feel like we should be doing more as a committee in our oversight of the violations of that athleticism and amateurism that occur all the time. So she's saying, we're not doing enough to enforce principles of amateurism. Not a great message for the athletes. And then she says she doesn't like one and done and and all that stuff. She says, I hope that we can continue to preserve the value of college sports as we look to this legislation. So again, Maria Cantwell has bought in to the framing from that very first hearing and the way that Anthony Gonzalez was talking about it. It's not a question of whether, it's a question of how. And she's anticipating that there will be legislation. So we've leaped over some of the most important issues and questions that should have been asked from the very beginning here. And she says, so as I said, I believe in preserving amateurism and that athletes would be able to grow. And when you listen to what Cantwell has had to say in the hearings since then and some of her public comments, you see that she's learned a little bit. But I don't think her default settings have changed. What we heard that her, in her very first comments in July of 2020 were where her heart is, what her value system is. And it is not athlete friendly, at least not profit athlete friendly. And she has bought in now 
to some of these equity themes and the gender equity theme. And that makes her a wild card, in my judgment, and a dangerous wild card for the athletes, even in a Democrat-controlled Senate. So we've got to keep a sharp eye on Maria Cantwell. And then the next set of clips come from an exchange between Connecticut Democrat Senator Richard Blumenthal and University of Baltimore School of Law Professor Dion Kohler. And I said at the top of the episode, Professor Kohler was the only witness across these eight hearings that has offered an intelligent, persuasive, comprehensive rebuttal to the things that the NCAA is asking for here. She sees through it. She got to the heart of it. And as I'm going to explain here, Roger Wicker didn't really want to hear much from her. So anyway, Blumenthal's asking some questions and they, he had a kind of a long windup. It seemed to me like he wasn't super prepared for this hearing. And again, he doesn't fully understand, you know, in July of 2020, exactly where this is headed. And it's not until later in, in that judiciary hearing that he and Booker have been talking and they say, wait a minute, we see what's going on here. We have to respond to it. But he, he was talking about some issues and he was in some ways actually deferential to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And he's a smart guy and, and he's a thoughtful guy. But his delivery was a little bit off. Uh, and he was asking Kohler about the antitrust immunity issue and what they're asking for now. And by they, he's talking about the final report of this federal and state legislation working group, this NCAA Board of Governors working group, issued his final report in April of 2020 that laid out the three death provisions. And she says this, and what they're asking for now in their report is a broad-based antitrust exemption, which would be extraordinary, even in sports. And then Blumenthal interrupts her to correct her in a way. And he says, well, it would certainly be extraordinary in college athletics. As you well know, the NHL and Major League Baseball and so forth have antitrust exemptions. So Kohler hears that and, and immediately she knows the flaw in that argument. And it's a massive flaw. And then she jumps in and says, that's with the presence of a union senator. That's the non-statutory labor exemption where athletes have a voice. This is a very, very different scenario than what we have here. And Blumenthal then says, that's an excellent point. But it establishes that Blumenthal really hasn't thought these issues through. And Kohler understood the issues. She came back, she corrected Blumenthal with the exact right answer that puts this in a proper context. And Roger Wicker didn't want to hear that because I don't know if it was audible on the clip at the beginning of the episode. But as Kohler was giving her response, you hear this loud banging and Wicker's banging the hell out of the gavel because he thinks Blumenthal's out of time and he does not want to hear what Dion Kohler had to say. And Roger Wicker doesn't want that truth coming from an expert, a law professor, in the public narrative and in the record in this hearing. And it was, it was comical on one level because it was just absurd, but it highlights the danger with which these issues have been framed by the NCAA and Power Five through their Republican senators and representatives in Congress, and how easy it is for those narratives to go unchallenged. And in that exchange, it was just so clear that Roger Wicker wanted to shut Dion Kohler the hell up, and he doesn't want to hear from people like her. And uh, even though he's no longer the ranking member on the Commerce Committee, he turned that over to Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, who also appeared at one of the hearings in 2020. And he's no friend of the athletes. He's NCAA Power Five right down the line. 
But Roger Wicker is right there and he's going to stay on the job. He's going to be focused on this. And in that interview that he gave in September of last year, when he reintroduced his Death Star bill, he said as much. You know, he said, yeah, Cruz is going to be taking the ranking chair here, but I'm right there and I'm all in. So we can expect more of the same. Uh, And then we have the last clip in the montage that was from last week's hearing. This is an interesting bookend to what you heard on the front end from that very first hearing through Gonzalez and Bowlesby and Emmert. And then what you heard from Frank Pallone. And I talked a little bit about this in the last episode about his comments. He demonstrated a profound ignorance of the issues. And he essentially acknowledged that because he gave uh, some of his time to Lori Trahan, who's supposed to be the expert because she played a volleyball in college. But Pallone, this quote is just so important because it shows how invisibly some of the advocacy on the Power Five NCAA side has made it into the congressional debate by stealth and by disguised advocates like Tom McMillan. So Pallone says, thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I want to recognize, because I see him in the audience, former Congressman Tom McMillan, who served on this committee when I started. And he, of course, was a great basketball player. And when he was here, championed the concerns of college athletes. So I'm sure that's why he's here today. Thank you, Tom. I I honestly, when I heard that, I thought the athletes are screwed. They're just screwed because this is a guy who's supposed to understand the issues. He's an influential decision maker in the House. He's been there a long time and seems like a very skilled politician. But when he is saying that Tom McMillan is at that hearing to champion the rights of student athletes, he has just done the athletes a disservice. Because Tom McMillan is at that hearing, not because he cares about the athlete's interests, but because he is a paid advocate for the Power Five athletics directors through Lead One. He is the president of Lead One. It is a 501c6 nonprofit that can engage in political activity. And because McMillan is a former congressman and was well-liked in Congress, and he appears at times to be fluent in some of these issues, they listen to him. They pay attention to him. When you hear McMillan out in public commentary or interviews or webinars and all that stuff, it's interesting how often his affiliation with Lead One gets omitted. People don't acknowledge that he is the president of Lead One, and more importantly, what Lead One does. Their goal is to protect the status quo beneficiaries, at least the Power Five athletics directors, and he is on board with whatever it takes to get from Congress to serve his clients' needs. And as we heard from Pat Chun, who is a member of Lead One, the Washington State Athletics Director, and you listen to his testimony, and it is up yours to the athletes. Athletes can't be employees, federal preemption, antitrust immunity. That's what Tom McMillan is peddling for the Power Five athletics directors. He's well paid. I went back to the Form 990 tax returns. As a nonprofit, it has to file this nonprofit tax return and disclosure document. And the most recent one was from the tax year ending in 2020, and he was making well over half a million dollars, you know, today, three years later, particularly given how this legislative campaign has evolved. He could be making much, much more than that. 
So he's making serious money here to advocate on behalf of his clients. It's another situation where I'm thinking, why wasn't a Democrat on that committee, other than Pallone, obviously, or somebody speaking on behalf of the athletes going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You need to understand what lead one is. And you need to understand that the propaganda that Pat Chun was spewing out is representative of the propaganda of all Power Five athletics directors, what they really want from this, and that Tom McMillan is driving the car for them. That needed to be on the table, and it wasn't. And what I fear is that what people who watch this hearing may take away is that Tom McMillan is a reasonable spokesperson here, and he's speaking on behalf of athletes' rights. Uh, and when he goes back on the speaking tour or to, or to the next webinar, he can do that with the parents of the stamp of approval from a Democrat leader in the House of Representatives that Tom McMillan is an athlete's rights advocate. And McMillan has been very savvy at disguising his true role and occasionally making comments that make it appear as if He's progressive on this issue, but that is an illusion because the clients he represents want to turn this business model back to the 1950s. So with that, I'm going to close this out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.